uh, our study on the seven um, uh, holy days or feasts that God instructed the nation of Israel to practice in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and um, I'm thankful that uh, God has given us some wonderful, wonderful illustrations and pictures uh, in the Old Testament that help us uh, to understand not only things that have happened in the past with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ, but things that are yet to come. And uh, we uh, have looked at these uh, these feasts, and last week we got down through, I believe, the first fruits, and just starting on the uh, the the uh, feast of Pentecost, and um, we talked about how that the Passover uh, was representative of the crucified Christ. The unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, was a picture of him being buried, and the feast of the first fruits being uh, the picturing him being raised from the dead. And uh, we spent a little bit of time dealing with that. And uh, that brings us down, if you will, to verse number 15. Verse number 15, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse number 15. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So basically he's saying here seven, seven weeks or seven Sabbaths. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And ye shall bring out of your habitations... Two wave loaves of two tenth deals, they shall be of fine flour, and they shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord, and ye shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. And they shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. Then ye shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them unto the bread of the first fruit, wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be in holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile work therein, and it shall be a statute forever in your dwellings throughout your generations. And ye shall reap the harvest of your land, and shall not make, uh, clean, shall not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any, clean, any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so God gives a, some very specific instructions of how they were to celebrate this uh, feast of Pentecost. This feast of Pentecost was to take place 40, uh, 49 days plus one. It says the day after. Uh, so it would be 50 days total from the day of the first fruit. So you have seven Sabbaths, and he says on the day after, then this is when you are to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And again, if you look at the New Testament account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, of course, he was uh, crucified uh, at the time of Passover and, of course, was buried during the time of unleavened bread. He raised during the time of the first fruits. And then, uh, if you'll remember, he uh, was on the earth for a short while and then he um, ascended back to heaven. When he did so, he told his disciples, he said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
And so we find in that statement one of the first times that God begins to incorporate not just the nation of Israel, but now the Gentiles are also a part of this. He says to every, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And as he's giving them this commission, he tells them they're to go and to teach them all things whatsoever that he had commanded them, that they were to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. And he says, but, before you go do all this stuff I just told you to do, he said, but, he said, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And so the disciples did that. They went to Jerusalem. They were waiting there, and they were praying in the upper room. If you'll remember that story. And they're praying there and waiting. In the book of Acts, chapter number 1, it talks about this. And, in fact, let's take a moment to read that account. If you will, turn with me to the book of Acts, and let's go to chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2, and let's just see this very quickly. Acts chapter number 2. <clears throat> And when the day of Pentecost was fully, fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we find here this was the, the day of Pentecost. This was 50 days after uh, the Feast of the First Fruits, And uh, God is fulfilling His promise that He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. Now, understand there is a distinction that the Bible makes between what is called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where He lives, and what the Bible refers to as the indoing of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit coming upon us, uh, outwardly, strengthening us, filling us with His power. Uh, the Bible speaks oftentimes of uh, the fact that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it says that there was the church of Laodicea, uh, that He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and will sup with him and he with me. And that's we use that verse oftentimes for showing somebody their need to be saved. Uh, but the truth is, that was actually written to Christians. And so we know that there's a, a, a possibility for Christians to grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, we understand that there is the possibility, and the Bible teaches this, of us to quench the Holy Spirit working in us. That does not mean that He no longer lives inside of us. That just means that we have, we have caused the working of the Holy Spirit to, to come to a, a place where it stops uh, the outward working, the empowering, the undoing, if you will. And so even though these disciples were already saved, they had already put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of Christ, they did not have the empowering or the resting on of the Holy Spirit upon their work and their, their labor. And so they were, they were waiting to go out and do this labor that the Lord had asked them to do. And uh, while they're waiting on this, they are praying together. They're all of one accord, of one mind, and one heart. And they're all gathered together in one place. And then the day of Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit comes. So when that happened, it started a period of time that was from that day until the day that you and I are sitting here today. And that is a period of time where God is not dealing directly with Israel any longer. He's kind of put a pause on dealing directly with Israel. 
And now he has opened the door and is dealing and working through uh, local New Testament churches. And so we have a 2,000 plus year period now of God primarily working through the church. Now, some people take that thought and they go too far with it. They say that means that God has cut off Israel and they are no longer his people. That is not what the Bible teaches. They are still his people. And in fact, the Bible is very clear that God is not through with Israel. Uh, he will give them another opportunity. He will bring them back and gather them back to him again. And will once again work through his chosen people, the nation of Israel. We have had the wonderful privilege for the last 2,000 years to be included and to be grafted in, to be used of God. And so now we're dealing with the 2,000-year period where the Holy Spirit is at work. And he does that through the individual members of the local New Testament church. His enduing of power on us. And so this, this idea of the, the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost is that after the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be a period of time where God is going to work through His Holy Spirit in the life of all believers, those that trust Him as their Savior. He's going to use those vessels to do His work for that period of time. And it's found, as we look in uh, back in Leviticus chapter 23, if you're still there, and look with me, if you will, in verse number 17, because we see something very interesting here. It says, "Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths, uh, uh, two tenth deals. They shall be a fine, uh, be a fine flour, and they shall be bacon. Notice this with leaven. Now, anytime we find leaven in Scripture, we oftentimes refer to that as as things of of a sinful nature. In fact, if you uh, remember, there is the feast of the unleavened bread." which spoke of the purity and the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it pictured. And yet, here in the time of Pentecost, uh, he says, I want you to bake two loaves of bread, and this time I want you to have leaven in them. And again, what he was picturing by that was the fact that it is no longer just the nation of Israel, but now the Gentiles are included. Uh, the whole world is included. And so, uh, it's interesting to me, uh, how God uh, kind of uses one to picture one thing and one to use another. Let's look at a few passages. Keep your Bible handy here. Let's start in Matthew chapter number 9. And uh, we're going to look at verse number 37. Matthew chapter number 9 and verse number 37. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking here. And already he is, even though the book of Matthew is written primarily to the Jews, he's trying to give some instruction and we see kind of some glimmers. We see some of the things that Jesus teaches in His earthly ministry where He is beginning to give the teaching to the Jews that, hey, this isn't just for you. It's going to be for everyone. And we find the beginnings of this in verse number 37 when He's teaching His disciples. And He says, Then saith He unto the disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. And this is an interesting thing because Christ is, the setting of it is he's looking out and he's seeing the multitudes. And he's moved by that. He's moved by the seeing of the multitudes. And he makes this statement to the disciples, the harvest is plenteous. There, there's so much to do. It's already wide unto harvest. And, and uh, there needs to be um, uh, the, the laborers that would be willing to go out into his harvest and to bring forth fruit. And so he begins to teach that in Matthew chapter 9. Now look with me in Luke, uh, 
chapter number 14. Luke chapter number 14. <clears throat> Let's look in verse number 15. Luke chapter 14. In verse number 15. Get the right place here. Luke chapter number 14 and verse number 15. Then one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, and he said unto them, unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man had a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, uh, have me excused. Another said, I have bought um, five uh, yoke of oxen. I have to prove them, I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And so he gives here a parable of a man who goes to the ones that were supposed to be part of the supper that he had prepared, and they refused to come. They made excuses, and they rejected him. And he said, if that's the case, then I want you to go out here and find people that will come. And I want you to bring them in. And so God allowed the Gentiles the opportunity. And aren't we glad for that today? I'm going to tell you, I'm so thankful that God allowed even the Gentiles to be partakers of the salvation that He was here to offer. And God knew this. Even from the beginning of the world, God knew this was going to be the case and uh, through his foreknowledge, he understood these things. Now look with me in Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. <clears throat> and let's look in verse number 11. Romans chapter number 10. And verse number 11. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that what? Call upon Him. All of us have been given the privilege of trusting Him as our Savior. I'll never get over this, and I hope that we don't ever get over the fact that we're saved. That God has allowed us. He's opened the door. He's made it possible for you and I to... Uh, have our sins forgiven, have them atoned for, have the price to be paid for us. Um, when I was in college <clears throat> a number of years ago, a man uh, had come to preach and he used an illustration that I thought was a wonderful, wonderful illustration. And he said, uh, he said suppose, and it was a fictional story, but I loved the illustration, the thought of it. He said, suppose that a man came into your home and murdered your family, your wife, your kids, in cold blood. And uh, they finally caught up with the man and said, uh, we caught him and uh, we're going to prosecute him, we're going to take him to court. And they, they bring him up on trial and the court 
determines that he is guilty as charged of first-degree murder. And you were to step forward and say, I want to forgive him of that. I want to show mercy. I want to make sure that he doesn't pay the crime. And the judge says, well, uh, <laughs> the crime has to be paid for. has to be paid for. And you step up and say, then let me pay it. That's mercy. That we did not want him to suffer the penalty of sin. It was grace if we were to step up and say, then let me pay it for him. Can I tell you this? We think of a story like that. We think, boy, what a, a noble person this person must be to be able to have that kind of love for a man that had done so wrong against his family. To not only show him mercy, but to show him grace. And I think oftentimes that when Christ looked down and saw us, we had sinned so vilely against His holiness. He looked down and said, I don't want them to pay the penalty for their sin. And He showed us mercy. But then He went further than that because the price had to be paid. And when He realized the price had to be paid, or He knew the price had to be paid, He said, then I'm going to pay it for them. And He had no reason to do that. None. Other than the fact that He loved us. I hope we don't ever get over our salvation. I hope as Christians we don't ever get to the place where we say, my salvation isn't a whole lot. Oh, it's, it's everything. To think that God in heaven would do something like that for you or I is an amazing thought. And we as God's uh, children, we get the opportunity to be His children now, have been given that privilege. And He showed this all the way back in Leviticus when He was speaking of the Feast of the, uh, of the Pentecost. And that we would have now both the Jews and the Greeks uh, combined and being able to be partakers of the promise of God. And what a wonderful thing that that is. And so the Feast of Pentecost is representing the church, uh, the time of the church, uh, the local New Testament churches, and the time that God is working through them. That brings us to verse number 24. Uh, Leviticus number... I'm in the wrong book here. I turned back the wrong way. Excuse me a minute. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse number 24, if I can get to the right page here. And we find here now the Feast of Trumpets. This is the uh, fifth of the, of the feasts. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And so, not a lot is said of the Feast of Trumpets other than they're supposed to observe it. But again, we find as we go through these feasts and realize how they line up with what not only God has done, but we'll find that these last three feasts will deal with what is yet to come, what Christ is going to do. And so we find here the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, most all believe that this is... Uh, referring to the rapture, the time that God is going to come and take those that trust Him as their Savior out of this place. And that will happen. And we've spent some time on Wednesday night showing this from Scripture, that that will happen prior to 
the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation. Some people believe it happens in the middle. Some people believe it happens at the end. I happen to believe it happens at the beginning because that's what the Bible teaches about it. And I would rather take Bible uh, knowledge of this, of this idea rather than what a man thinks or supposes about something. But we have here the Feast of Trumpets. Trumpets were always used throughout the nation of Israel to symbolize uh, celebration, to symbolize deliverance or liberty, uh, to proclaim it through the land. Um, and um, look at uh, Leviticus chapter 25 for a moment and verse number 8. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse number 8. <clears throat> and thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven uh, times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years, and thou shalt cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month and the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And the reason that they were doing this is found in verse number 10. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land on all the inhabitants thereof. And so it's to proclaim liberty, it's to proclaim victory, it's to proclaim uh, deliverance, if you will. And you say, well, what in the rapture, what are we being delivered from? We're being delivered from this world of sin. We no longer have to be in this, in this uh, uh, corrupt world. And so it shows this, this time period and that God has been using uh, to evangelize and to proclaim liberty to the lost and ending with the trumpet sounding and Christ rapturing us up out of this place. And so uh, we ought to be busy. Uh, sharing the gospel. Uh, Isaiah says, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Uh, we're to be proclaiming liberty to those that are uh, bound by sin, those that are lost, and sharing with them the wonderful truth of the gospel. Uh, and it's going to end with the time of the rapture. Uh, and we find that happening uh, in several places uh, throughout the Scripture. And we spent some time already dealing with that on Wednesday night, so I'm not going to reteach it here in the Sunday school hour, but uh, the pre-tribulational return of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often the Bible refers to us watching, uh, to be ready, to be waiting for the imminent, the unexpected, the, uh, if you will, I hate to use this word, but the surprise return, because uh, the Bible says in, in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. And uh, the fact that He's going to come when we least expect it, it seems like. And that's why God says, don't be caught that way. <laughs> Live every day expecting Him to come. And uh, because we do not know the day or the hour. I was uh, sitting last night in uh, Brother Ron's room and talking with uh, his, his uh, wife Belinda and, and Brother uh, Wayne. And I was, uh, we were talking a little bit about this, how that even if God were to call Brother Ron home, uh, it may just be for a day or two before we're with him again. Because the rapture could happen at any time. It may happen before God calls Brother Ron home. And uh, we literally believe in that as God's people. If we do believe that, the way that we say that we believe that, I think it does affect a couple of things. I think it will affect how we live personally. It, I would hate to be involved or in the middle of something that I knew to be contrary to the Word of God, to be living in a way that was... The next time I lose my temper... And I start yelling at somebody. I would hate for right in the middle of me making that strong argument for the trumpet to sound. You know how embarrassed that would be? How embarrassing that would be? I would hate for the next time somebody cuts me off in traffic and I just start laying on the horn. 
for the trumpet to sound right as I'm pushing the horn. It's going to affect how we live, isn't it? If we believe that He's coming at any moment. Uh, the things that uh, we have in our lives that are sinful things, that we know to be sin, that we willingly choose to do, to be involved in that at the time of the rapture, at the time of the trumpet sounding. And so the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ will cause us to live differently in our lives, prepared, ready for His coming. Secondly, it's going to affect how we serve the Lord. It's going to affect our labor for Him. Because if we truly believe that He can come at any moment, then would we not do everything we could to reach those that we know and love, to reach those that we come across their paths, to let them know of the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so they can trust Christ as their Savior, so they would not be left behind, that they would not be here? Would we not want that to happen? Would we not want them to know? I think one of the worst things that would happen would be for me to stand in heaven one day. And the truth is, I already know in some cases that it will. For me to stand in heaven one day and watch as somebody that I knew who was not saved, as God judges them and says, Depart from me into everlasting darkness. And to know that I could have shared the gospel with them. And I didn't. I think there's going to be a great amount of sorrow when we first see those things in heaven. So much so that I believe it's one of the reasons why God is going to have to wipe away tears. As we realize that there are so many that we knew, that we were acquainted with, some that we love, maybe family members, maybe neighbors, maybe friends. We're going to stand there and see that we could have done something more. We could have shared the gospel with them. It's what we're supposed to be doing now. Lifting up the trumpet. Sounding forth the great message of the gospel. Telling others about Him. Finding every opportunity to share it with a friend or loved one, a neighbor. It's going to happen, folks. The rapture is the next thing on the prophetic timetable. And it can happen at any moment. It may happen before we leave here today. And I believe that with, when we live that way every day, with that in mind, it ought to affect those two areas of our lives. How we live and how we serve. And I hope that it does. I hope that we think of it and meditate on that daily. That we allow it to affect us the way that God intends for that to affect us. To help us in these areas. We get to verse number 27. In the Bible, verse 26. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it shall be uh, that shall not be afflicted in that day, same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever through your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and ye shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month. At even, from even unto even, shall ye celebrate your Sabbath. And we find that the Day of Atonement 
is a day <clears throat> that uh, you and I as New Testament believers uh, will not be a partaker of. This is strictly for the nation of Israel as God brings them back to a place of fellowship with Him during the time of the tribulation period where they will, they will uh, be uh, uh, forgiven by Christ. They will be brought back again as His people and God will once again use the nation of Israel during this time period. And so this is mainly for the restoration of Israel to God and for uh, uh, God to be uh, reconciled to Israel and uh, before the time of His second coming. So that seven-year of tribulation period, or uh, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, we would refer to that as the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, this time of atonement is what this pictures. And then finally, uh, come on in, folks. You're welcome. Y'all can come on in. It's not going to bother me a bit. you got to come right on in and have a seat. Uh, then uh, in chapter 23, verse number uh, 34, we'll finish with this one and we'll be done with Sunday school and then we'll be ready for our next service here. Uh, verse number 33, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. And on the first, on the first day shall be in a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord on the eighth day shall be in holy convocation unto you. And ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work. And so we find that this um, Feast of Tabernacles um, are going to be uh, a time that shows the time of Christ residing with, or us residing in His presence, let's put it that way if you will. And this would include the time of what we would call the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then also the eternity to follow that. In First uh, Thessalonians, Paul spoke of this as he says, uh, when he spoke of the rapture, he says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so from the time that we get uh, an opportunity to be with Christ, throughout the rest of eternity, uh, we are living with Him. His tabernacle is with us. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing is in the Old Testament, when uh, God established the tabernacle, come on in, folks. Uh, when God established the tabernacle, He put it right in the midst of the nation of Israel. He had uh, the tribes encamp around the tabernacle. And the idea was so that they could, they could have the presence of God in their midst for the rest of, of the time that they had Him there. And uh, so again, we'll see a day of that uh, coming once again during the millennial reign. We'll be with Christ, and throughout the rest of eternity we will be with Christ. So again, we see how these, these seven feasts, these seven uh, holy days, are pictures of uh, not only what Christ has done, but what He's going to be doing in the near future. And uh, they ought to be something we learn from, that we can understand uh, a little bit better of Scripture. There ought to be some lessons that we can learn from them. And I think primarily the biggest lesson we can learn is to watch and be ready, uh, because we don't know when He's coming back. We look forward to these things, and I uh, hope that will be a help to us. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll be dismissed and be back here in just a few moments for the next service. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Guide and direct us as we study, it, and Lord, as we preach it in the next hour, I pray that it will be a help to us. Guide and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.